From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, it is due south on WUNC. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Tiberi. Time again for our North Carolina News Roundup. Our panelists are champing at the bit. We'll introduce them in a moment. First, some sounds of the week. North Carolina hospitals saw nearly 2,000 patients combined diagnosed with flu and COVID-19 last week. So far, our numbers would indicate that at least in the last week or two, certainly amongst adults, the rates of these illnesses are still going up. The flowers and the tributes are pouring in for the officer, remembered as a devoted family man and a hero. That mass shooting happened just before New Year's Eve celebrations as thousands of families were packed into that area of uptown but they scattered in chaos after gunfire erupted. It'll be a deconstruction, not an implosion. Um, Again, because of how it's built, uh, you just aren't going to knock it down. You're going to have to kind of deconstruct it. David Tepper in hot water tonight after he was seen throwing a drink on Jaguars fans during Jacksonville shutout win over Carolina. A well-respected Greensboro police sergeant was killed while off-duty. Meanwhile, a New Year's Eve shooting in uptown Charlotte. Hospitalization of seasonal sicknesses are up. And petulant Panthers owner David Toddler-esque Tepper. A move my two-year-old has in her arsenal. That in a bit. Here to help us get caught up on the week that was and also synthesize some of what to expect in 2024 are Colin Campbell. Capitol Bureau Chief at WUNC, Rose Hoban, founder and editor-in-chief at North Carolina Health News, Steve Harrison, political reporter at NPR's member station in Charlotte, WFAE, and Danielle Battaglia, Capitol Hill correspondent at the News and Observer. Good morning, squad. Morning, Jeff. Good morning. Morning. I'd ask how you're feeling, but really know how are you feeling. Sickness, uh, the, you know, following the, the holidays is in an upswing, if not a full swing. Rose, what are the biggest takeaways about sickness from the last week or so? I don't get into a room with strangers <laughs> that where there's not good ventilation. Mm. Oh, look, I'm sitting in a room with mm. two people where in there's not studio. great ventilation. Yeah, meat yeah. vacuum door. Yeah. 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 Hope um, none of us are contagious this morning. <laughs> what can you tell us about numbers, Colin? Um, it is an upswing, as we've noted. It's, uh, I, I guess, notably, there are more flu cases right now uh, than there are COVID cases. And that's the first time we've seen that in several years. Uh, but what are the what are the takeaways from right now? As it yeah, so I mean, flu and, R- and COVID are up. Uh, RSV, this respiratory virus that's common in kids, is down. Um, I think my kid had that back in November. Now that's uh, less of a concern. Mm-hmm. Hospitalization's up. I think they're at a level that's a little bit higher than this time last year, but not nearly as high as the year before. So some good, some bad, I guess, in, in what we're seeing, but certainly not unexpected for the cold months of the year when respiratory viruses are always uh, on the rise. It's January 5th. Is this going to get worse, Rose, do, do we think? Actually, if you look at last week's flu numbers in North mm-hmm. Carolina, there's a slight downtick, but it's still going gangbusters. According to the CDC, we're yeah. in one of the hottest spots in the country is the southeast. And then, of course, you know, COVID is still circulating. This JN1 variant is uh, is spreading, although our COVID numbers are not as bad as the Northeast. So, you know, in the winter, you know, people are I mean, I was quipping, but people are together. They're in enclosed spaces and this stuff spreads really easily. So we have RSV. It's still around, even though it's going down. And as you know, Jeff, you have you have little kids. Right. They're like little Petri dishes. So they go to, you know, 
they get less of it because they were home for the holidays mm -hmm. and then they go back to daycare and right. maybe they're getting more. Right. And not to mention garden variety rhinoviruses, which are just colds, which spread super easily, too. So there's a lot of it circulating. It's not too late to get uh, inoculated from the flu, from nope. RSV, if you haven't had your, your COVID right. booster. And uh, the vast majority of, of people have not had, have not COVID, had COVID boosters. Booster. Uh, mm -hmm. You can still do that. Yeah. I got them both in one 10-minute visit to a public pharmacy a couple weeks ago. I so. did the same thing back in uh, late October. I you know, went in and COVID in one arm and flu in the other. Certainly a story uh, we will continue to, to, to pay attention and credence to in the, the weeks uh, and months perhaps ahead. Let's transition to Medicaid expansion. We are one month and a few days in. Uh, Rose, North Carolina Health News reported on this this week, just the rollout, the additional 600,000 recipients of this federal state health care program that North Carolina finally relented on and expanded at the beginning of December. How's it going? Well, it seems to be going okay. Um, there was a big initial flood of people in, about 280,000 people. Most of those folks, though, were auto-enrolled because they were originally on a Medicaid family planning program, which uh, gave free family planning uh, medications primarily mm -hmm. for people who were of childbearing age. And so those folks, and, and that, that went up to 200% of federal poverty. So all those folks just got rolled onto Medicaid. Um, any of those folks who were below 138% of federal poverty. And so that was about 263,000. And then they got about another seven or 8,000 enrollments. And mm -hmm. so now, you know, now that you've had this initial tranche, now it's going to be the outreach and the, you know, events to get people on board and signed right. up. Um, there's some there's going to be some bleed over from people who try and sign up for Affordable Care Act insurance, uh, you know, on the marketplaces. Right, right. And that is this year is the strongest year on the ACA marketplaces in since the rollout. They're hmm. going to have more than 22 million people. Oh, wow. And, you know, a few years ago it was down like 12, 13 million. So this is a huge number of mm -hmm. people. Who um, and partly that's because there are extra subsidies that are available for people as a as a result of kind of a holdover from COVID and um, the the infrastructure right. bill had money for COVID in there uh, for um, subsidies for insurance subsidies in there. Rose Hoban of North Carolina Health News is here in studio. So is Colin Campbell of WUNC. Steve Harrison on the line from WFA and Danielle Battaglia uh, from the News and Observer. Uh, joins us from Washington, D.C. Colin, we have talked in this space before about some of the inherent challenges as it pertains to health care, some challenges that Medicaid expansion is not going to fix, transportation limitations, uh, deserts, so to speak, health care deserts, how far do you have to go to get care for certain kinds of ailments or challenges. Um, that acknowledged, maybe set to the side for a moment, are there any obvious challenges that are taking place or hurdles that still need to be cleared building on what Rose was just talking about as it is uh, specific to Medicaid expansion. Here. I think it'll take time to see this. Um, and that's sort of the healthcare system's capacity. Obviously, you have, you know, half a million additional people who now will be eligible. Uh, will they be seeking more healthcare services than they were when they were uninsured and just stuck going to the ER when things got desperate? Uh, that's likely. Uh, and then the question is, you know, what tension point does that create? Are there 
providers in certain communities in certain areas that uh, you have a long wait list to get an appointment now as a result of that? Does that result in additional capacity to more providers set up shop in North Carolina? Do facilities expand? Uh, that all will sort of remain to be seen uh, since we're so early into this process right now. And one of the big concerns is about dentistry, mm-hmm. um, you know, because there are some folks who are going to be eligible for dentistry. And the there's very, there's not a lot of dentists who take Medicaid. Mm. And the ones who do have their books full, right? So um, getting people into dentistry is still going to be a challenge. We are off and moving here on our North Carolina News Roundup here on Due South, a belated Happy New Year. Not sure how long you can say Happy New Year, but I'm still saying it five days into 2024. Let's move to the triad uh, where a tragedy played out in recent days. When you lose a loved one that was serving our community to make not only us safe, my children safe, your children safe, the community safe, it's gut-wrenching. That's Greensboro City Councilman Zach Matheny speaking to uh, news reporters uh, earlier this week. That's following the December 30th shooting of Greensboro Police Sergeant Philip Dale Nix, who was killed while off-duty. He witnessed a robbery at a gas station, approached the suspects, and was shot multiple times. The alleged assailants were apprehended, and an 18-year-old has been charged with first-degree murder. Nix was just 50. Danielle, I'm going to go personal here uh, immediately. You got to know Sergeant Nix during your time as a journalist in the triad, and I just I want to go to the person first. What are the first few words that come to mind to best describe him? I'd say passionate and loving. He was one of those people that you meet, and you just knew that he cared about victims of domestic violence was the thing that I talked to him the most about. And to lose Sergeant Nix in Guilford County was just such a huge loss for that county, for the triad. He was one of those officers that you knew was making a difference in his community. And he did it very under the radar and didn't need the um, accolades that a lot of officers get or that you see out front um he was one that was just so passionate about the work he was doing about another minute or so before we come up on the break here danielle uh, is there anything that when you heard this awful news this week you thought back on your times interacting with him a particular moment or vignette or something uh, about your time with him honestly um i haven't actually told many people this but um i left the news and records so quickly Uh, when I was working there that I never finished a story that I was doing with Sergeant Nix. And we had talked in depth about domestic violence and why he was so passionate about protecting the victims of Guilford County and just his knowledge and his depth and his passionate for stopping this kind of horror in the community stuck with me. And it was always an article that I regretted that I never got to complete. Mm. Um, and just his knowledge was so, like, there was so much to it. His depth was there. And I just thought, like, this this is shattering to the community to not have him there anymore. Danielle Battaglia joining us from Washington, D.C. She is uh, a Capitol Hill correspondent for McClatchy these days, but she used to cover Rockingham County and used to work for the Greensboro News and Record. Uh, and just a, a brief memory there on Greensboro Police Sergeant Philip Dale Nix, who was killed uh, while off duty uh, late last month. He was just 50 years old.
Much more to discuss in the North Carolina News Roundup here on Due South, including a framing up of the 2024 election season. We'll be back in a moment here on WUNC. Welcome back. It's the North Carolina News Roundup on Due South here on WUNC. On this day, 103 years ago, Lillian Exum Clement was sworn in at the North Carolina legislature, becoming the first woman in the South to hold legislative office. Clement was nominated two months before ratification of the 19th Amendment, which, of course, granted her and American women the right to vote. She went on to comfortably defeat two male opponents in the primary. According to the North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, Clement introduced 17 bills while serving as a member of the State House, including a proposal to have the state assume control of a home for unwed mothers. This garnered widespread opposition, and for her proposal, Clement was pelted with eggs and vegetables while speaking on the bill's behalf in Asheville. She served one term, after which she was appointed director of the state hospital at Morganton. She contracted pneumonia in 1925 and died. There's some dispute over how old she was, though it's widely agreed upon that she passed before her 40th birthday. In 1997, an organization to promote and support Democratic women running for public office in North Carolina was established. It took the name Lillian's List. Perhaps some of you have heard of it in honor of Clement. Just a little neat historical nugget to get us going uh, in our um, in our second segment here on the North Carolina News Roundup. We've got Danielle Battaglia, Colin Campbell, Rose Hoban, and Steve Harrison here as a part of our discussion. And Steve, I want to throw this to you first as we uh, acknowledge Lillian Exum Clement and think about the 2024 ballot. Uh, who's the most notable or compelling woman on the ballot this year? Uh, Jeff, I will say that that is right here in my backyard in Charlotte, and that is Republican State Representative Trisha Cotham, who, of course, left the Democratic Party last year and became a Republican, giving them a supermajority. She is up for re-election uh, this year. I will say it will be probably the biggest state legislative race in the history of Mecklenburg County, maybe the entire state. I mean, this will be an epic fight, and the Democrats will be, you know, be launching this huge campaign to unseat her and to extract some revenge. It's going to be personal. It's going to be nasty. There will be national attention and national money. Uh, Steve, tell us about the two primaries here. Does Cotham have any challengers on the right? And how many candidates are there on on the left in, in the Democratic circle? Cotham has no opponents on the Republican side. So she will skate through in March, uh, you know, and be right there in November. Three Democrats are running. Um, the one is Yolanda Holmes, a woman who ran against Cotham in the Democratic primary back in 2022 and lost. She is running again. And and Holmes actually, going back to your earlier bit, uh, she had received the Lillian's List endorsement in that election. And I think that really kind of bothered Cotham. Um, but th- then there's two others. Terry Lansdale is a, uh, is a, bike, a bike activist. And Nicole Sidman um, is a first time candidate, but a political operative who appears in a way to be perhaps the best position candidate to take on Cotham in November. Um, but like you said, I mean, it will be there will be so much attention paid to this race as we get into the fall. Let, let me build on that last point. Why is she the best uh, candidate position to take on Cotham in the general? Um, I think that there is uh, she had run. She has some political experience. 
having run, uh, she ran Christy Clark's campaign a couple years ago. Uh, she's a state was a former state representative. Um, she has raised money for Josh Stein in Charlotte. I would assume that will be uh, that will be that favor will be returned. This new district that Cotham is in is in a very uh, conservative. Um, it is an overwhelmingly. I just think demographically, Nicole Sidman may match up to this new swing district better than any of the three candidates. Civics reminder: State lawmakers earn thirteen thousand nine hundred and fifty-one bucks, I believe it is, annually, plus that a whopping hundred and two dollar per day diem when they are in session. Uh, this just to underscore the fact they don't get paid a whole lot. There have been some competitive North Carolina state house races in recent cycles that have garnered hundreds of thousands of dollars in spending. Do you have care to render a guess, Steve, as to how much money might flow into this district and this race? I'm sure we'll we'll cross a million dollars. Um, both Republicans and Democrats have said that that it will easily break the million dollar mark. Um, you know, but but it's so interesting in that like the, the fate of Cotham and and whichever Democrat runs, I think so much of it is tied to the top of the ticket. You know, if for, if someone other than Donald Trump is running on the Republican side, I think that will be a huge boost to Cotham because this is a suburban district. You know, so many of the voters, the Republican voters there are people who've been turned off by Trump. If someone else is running, um, I, I think that would give her a huge boost. Um, but, you know, looking at the district, Donald Trump won it by about two percentage points in 2020. Governor Roy Cooper won it by one. You can't really get more of a toss-up definition than that. This is within the margin of error. Colin? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, this is one, one to watch. But, you know, one thing I think we've we've sort of made the mistake of in, in recent elections is focus so much on these uh, toss-up urban races, of which there are only a handful. And then there's always some surprise in some rural area of the state that we weren't paying close attention to, that neither party spent a whole lot of money on, and perhaps had they put some resources into, their party might have come out on top and then they end up losing. So it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of different things on the electoral map, uh, particularly when it comes to state house and state senate to watch uh, in addition to this one, which I think is going to consume a whole lot of attention and certainly a whole lot of money in fundraising this year. Mm -hmm. I want to take a step back. Uh, 2024, there is so much uh, from the governor's race. There is no U.S. Senate race here, but North Carolina, again, a battleground as we think about the White House all the congressional seats, all 170 legislative seats on the ballot. We've got one state Supreme Court contest. It will not tip the balance of the court, the full council of state. I could go on and on. I won't. But uh, Colin Campbell, if you would, for us, uh, and I'm going to bounce around here, uh, tell us what is top of mind, whether it's a particular issue or a race for you this year. I mean, I think the governor's race is probably going to take a lot of the oxygen out of the room when mm -hmm. you've got uh, Mark Robinson as the Republican frontrunner. We're going to be talking about things he said, things he is saying, things he has done. Um, pretty much all the way to November, assuming he gets through his uh, contested Republican primary, which the polling seems to indicate uh, he may. Um, but certainly the, the challenge, I think, going into March primaries is just figuring out which races to even pay attention to in the short term, because um, there are so many candidates, so many primaries. Uh, I'm trying to watch the, the congressionals, at least in the short term, because we've got several districts that used to be leaning Democratic. Now they are heavily leaning Republican. So really, who wins these primaries in districts like 13, the uh, District 10, which is the uh, Patrick McHenry seat, 
Um, whichever Republican comes out on top, that's probably our next member of Congress from that area of the state. Almost certainly. Um, yeah. So that's that's one to keep a close eye on because there's not there aren't clear front runners in a lot of those. And, and then I think District 13, which is sort of wraps around the triangle, where we've got 13 or 14 different Republican candidates. So just even trying to name them all, I don't think I could do it right now. And I really feel for the voters who are trying to research their ballot between now and March. And, and, that, we and that McHenry seat, I mean, that McHenry seat, that was a that was a total wild card. So I think there were a lot of people scrambling to get into the race um, and, you know, get into the primary. So that means I think that's why that primary is going to be such a, an open race. Danielle, what's top of mind for you? One or two uh, contests as we think about 2024? Well, I feel like Colin wrapped that in a bow pretty he, he nicely. Did. He did. <laughs> he did. I, I wanted to give you a chance. Um, but uh, I would say District 1 I'm really paying attention to because um, it's our swing district. And then, um, you know, I, I don't know how to pick another one because 13 is interesting. 6 is interesting. That's where Mark Walker, Bo Hines, um, Addison McDowell um, are running. You've got Dan Bishop walking away down in 8, and you've got uh, Patrick McHenry leaving in 10. So I'm really watching these races pretty carefully to see how they shape out. The dominoes, up. the dominoes are just, yeah, shape up, shape out. Shape, who knows? I mean, they might implode or explode. We really don't know at it's this true. point. <laughs> uh, five of North Carolina's 14 members of Congress, five of the 14 incumbents are not running again. So uh, uh, roughly a third w- will not be in the next Congress. Uh, Steve, I'm going to come back to you uh, for a little craziness here. Um, and others, uh, of course, can jump in. But uh, Mark Harris, he's back. Shades of Mark Sanford and Buddy Cianci, if you know, you know. Now, reminder, Mark Harris appeared to have won a seat in Congress in 2018. This is a district uh, east uh, adjacent of Charlotte that runs along the South Carolina border, uh, only to have a ballot harvesting scandal unravel his victory. Election results were not certified after it was determined that the Harris campaign had employed a ballot harvester. A new election was called. Harris did not run again. He was never charged with anything criminal. And now we're going to apparently run it back. Harris is one of six Republicans seeking the nomination in this congressional district. The seat was held by Republican Dan Bishop, who Danielle just mentioned. Bishop, a former state lawmaker, then member of Congress, is now running for the Republican nominee for attorney general. But let's synthesize back to this congressional district. Steve, Mark Harris is running again. Is this wacky to you or am I misinterpreting this? I mean, I think it's a bit wacky. Mark had kind of disappeared in a way. Um, you know, he had a real health scare uh, after that, after the, the ballot harvesting scandal. Um, but now he's back and he's running a bit of a campaign of grievance in a way. Um, Tim Funk uh, of, in the assembly had a great profile this week about the Harris campaign. Um, and it's so interesting, you know, Jeff, you talked about dominoes falling. Um, if if that ballot scandal had never happened, Mark Harris would be in Congress. Dan Bishop, who's now running for attorney general, very well might have been out of politics because, with mm. you know, in Mecklenburg County was trending so Democratic and mm. so blue, he might have lost his reelection bid. Um, but but back to that race, back to the Mark Harris race. Um, you know, Harris is is kind of in his opening campaign video from the fall talked about how the Democrats stole the election from him. Um, and or maybe I should say stole the election. Well, you know, a Republican did win that seat. Um, and in that story in the assembly, Dallas Woodhouse kind of made the comment like it worked out for Republicans in the end. It just didn't work out for Mark Harris. Mm-hmm. And um, is there is there video or 
photographs of Mark Harris crying on the stand. The day that his son testified against him, and he's saying the Democrats stole it from him, but the, the <laughs> nail in his coffin politically in that yeah. race was when his own son took the stand against him. Yeah, no, and I was wondering, like, is his son going to endorse him this time? I mean, <laughs> his son is running for a state legislature. Uh, ran race? for, I don't, I don't think for. he's, okay. I hadn't checked the list this year to see if he's filed again, but he did run for a Wake County House seat unsuccessfully, but certainly someone who's got political ambitions we may see again in, in uh, local politics. But, I mean, I'm like, you know, are they going to, if there's if there's video of him crying on the stand, like mm. over under on how that's going to be oh, used in campaigns. Fr- frequently, right? right. There's an interesting yeah. wrinkle I discovered in reporting a story about uh, Robinson County's shift to the right uh, based on the Lumbee Indian community. Uh, I heard in reporting that story that they were not happy uh, when Mark Harris ran initially with his support for federal recognition for the Lumbee tribe, um, whereas Dan McCready, the Democrat, was more supportive. So McCready actually did better than most Democrats in a county that's been trending more Republican, in part because of Lumbee's support for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. That, I think, could work against Harris in this primary, since he does have other Republican opponents that he's got to get past before he gets to a general election in the seat. We're chatting about the... Go ahead, Steve. I was going to say one more thing. You know, it's a six-person primary, uh, which is always a free-for-all. Mark Harris, maybe the biggest ace he has is that Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson has endorsed him. Um, that may be enough to kind of distinguish him from from the pack. We'll see. There is a 30% threshold. Name recognition is something that Mark Harris holds, uh, and it will be a uh, rather interesting year. Should note also on that congressional uh, contest. There is no Democrat. I don't believe, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do not believe there's a Democrat uh, in the race. So whoever wins the, the nom- nomination in that right-leaning district will be uh, effectively a, a Congress member elect uh, from North Carolina. We've got Steve Harrison on the line from NPR member station WFE in Charlotte, Colin Campbell, WNC Capitol Bureau Chief, Danielle Battaglia. She is a Capitol Hill correspondent for McClatchy and Rose Hoban, founder and editor-chief editor-in-chief of North Carolina Health News. Rose, I want to spend a moment on maybe issues, not just the policy, not just the candidates, not just the dominoes. Health care is such a major thing. Uh, we have Medicaid expanding. We have some issues in our state with uh, child care facilities. Uh, we have, of course, this overarching issue of abortion for the last year and a half. Tell me, from a health care perspective, what you think is going to have you know, the the most relevancy is going to impact elections the most this year. Oh, geez. Any one thing. You know, I think Medicaid expansion, uh, it was such a huge issue for so long. And now that it's done, I wonder if that's it's kind of going to fade as a as an issue. I think <clears throat> Democrats will try and run on it. Um, but it was Republicans that delivered it. Right. I'll be curious to see how the abortion issue plays out electorally. In North Carolina, in the last mm-hmm. cycle, um, there there are folks, there are pundits who've said that you know people didn't think it could happen here, that we would have a ban or that we would have restrictions, new restrictions on abortion. I don't think that we'll see any more this year, right? Because as you're going into a general election, nobody wants mm-hmm. to touch that one. Um, so, can Democrats message effectively that Republicans are going to take away your rights? Um, whereas Republicans will message that, hey, we did some restrictions, but they're middle of the road, et cetera. So how is that going to play, particularly in suburban districts that are swingier? And I think that's going to be sort of the most live 
electoral issue that comes out of health care. And we're halfway through our North Carolina news roundup here, Colin. I haven't mentioned you. I don't think anybody has mentioned the word supermajority yet. That is going to effectively on the be on the ballot this year at the state legislature if Republicans can maintain and or increase veto proof margins. Almost irrelevant who the, the governor is as it pertains to this conversation a year from now. My read on it is if Republicans can increase supermajority margins, we may very well see uh, additional abortion restrictions a year from now or in 2025. Is that yeah, a I mean, I, I, I think we've only gotten assurances from Republicans that they don't intend to do much more with abortion in the 2024 short mm-hmm. session. Beyond that, you know, who knows? And certainly there'll be pressure from folks on the right, uh, particularly if they, they win some big victories in this year's election. Uh, to come back and look at making that abortion law more restrictive to match some more restrictive red states elsewhere in the country. Basically saying that, you know, okay, you elected us, you gave us a larger supermajority. This is our mandate. The mandate. Mandate from the people. Uh, Earlier this week, we had the first in our Purple Ballot series here on Due South, a cast of characters, reporters, political scientists, uh, having a similar conversation to the one we're having now, but more expansive across an hour. I would encourage you to check that out at DueSouthRadio.org. And Feel free to email us or find me on the Twitter, J underscore T-I-B-S. Colin is at Raleigh Reporter. We would love your questions about 2024 as we get into 2024, big or small, uh, whether it's something you don't know about, whether it's something you think we should be paying more attention to. We will be spending lots of time on politics here in 2024, so uh, do not be a stranger. Do south at WUNC.org. couple minutes left before we uh, step aside for a brief moment. I want to get a recap here of something of a judicial spat that has taken place in recent days. North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice Paul Newby, a Republican, removed Donna Stroud, a fellow Republican, from a leadership post on the lower court of appeals. Stroud is still on the bench, serving an eight-year term, which she was elected to. Still seems like an uncommon move. What do we know about why Newby did this? Yeah, so Stroud uh, has been on the outs with uh, some of the uh, leading uh, judicial Republicans, uh, Phil Berger Jr., son of the state Senate leader, as well as Newby for some time now. There was a primary challenge uh, back in 2022. It was backed by some of those other folks to try to unseat her. She ended up winning her primary, won another term. And so the default for her is to continue to serve as chief judge of the Court of Appeals. That's based usually on seniority, uh, but doesn't have to be. The, the chief justice of the Supreme Court ultimately gets to decide that. Uh, and so he sort of broke with tradition on this very quietly without issuing a press release, without really giving much of an explanation publicly, uh, decided to demote her. So she's still a Court of Appeals judge. She's no longer the chief judge. That is now, I guess, the second most senior Republican judge, Chris Dillon, who now has that role. Uh, but sort of a, a snipe at her, uh, evidently on the basis, uh, from what we know, of a dispute going back a few years ago between Phil Berger Jr. and Donna Stroud over who should get a particular staff position at the Court of Appeals. They felt like she did not hire the person that they wanted for a job, and that's resulted in some bad blood going forward. Not sure if my eye roll could Seriously? be felt on the radio. Politics is a very, very petty place. Uh, well, you know, I'm always saying that uh, high school never ends. Uh, a brief note of context here, but <laughs> high school never ends. And some of this is revenge. Um I'll let you fill in the rest of the blank. Uh, Colin, so if the, the the chief judge of the Court of Appeals gets to impanel three judge panels to hear cases, that's effectively the most powerful thing that Stroud held here, correct? Yeah, exactly. Correct. I mean, chief judge is in a hugely powerful role. Uh, the, the Court of Appeals has, I think, 15 judges, so it's, uh, it's kind of spread out the power on this particular sort of second-tier appellate court. Um, so it's, some of it's almost more of a prestige than a real power thing. Um, but, yeah, it does, does impact your ability to decide who's 
hearing a particular case, what's the mix of Democrats and Republicans on a three-judge panel looking at a particular case? And as Yes, the, the three-judge panel, the, the, the chief justice also has some power over that. So interesting, another little judicial spat uh, that has played out here in the North Carolina courts. I uh, want to spend a, a couple of minutes on a couple of reporter pieces that emerged this week. Colin, you had a report out this week about a significant overhaul that's taking place to state government facilities in downtown Raleigh. This is uh, part of a plan to create an education campus, broad to start. What's happening? When? And why now? Yeah, so if you uh, sort of orient yourself uh, around the legislative building in downtown Raleigh, for those who haven't been there since their high school field trip, um, these are several buildings uh, pretty much adjacent to that building that are uh, ugly as sin and were built in the 1960s are going to be demolished at some point this year. One is the administration building. It's kind of across the street from the new wing of the Science Museum, houses the governor's office and a lot of other executive branch agencies. That is being torn down. Um, it's going to be replaced by what's referred to as the education campus. The legislature decided in its infinite wisdom that what it really needed to do is have the administrators of the UNC system, the community college system, the Department of Public Instruction, which handles K-12 through education, and the Department of Commerce, uh, which does some of the workforce development type projects that the state has, have them all under one roof. So they're going to build this fancy new building, seven or eight stories tall, uh, to put all these agencies in one building. That will replace this old building that also includes something of a bomb shelter in the basement that used to be where the governor went during the Cold War if hmm. there was going to be an emergency. So uh, some pretty heavy construction uh, to the tune of, I think, nearly half a billion dollars um, in this very busy section of downtown Raleigh that houses most of the state government operations. I'm going to ask what might sound like a dodo question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is this of benefit to rank and file North Carolinians? Is this a place that people will be able to go? Or what? I mean, if you like to go to UNC Board of Governors meetings or attend meetings of the State Board of Community College, if that's your idea of a good time, you might be hanging out at this place a lot. Uh, if not, maybe not. I mean, the, the argument from lawmakers who uh, sort of proposed this project and have allocated the funding for it is that these agencies will work together more effectively uh, to create a strong education system at every level in North Carolina if they're in the same building. Um, you know, whether that actually holds true in the era of Zoom, I think remains to be seen, right? Mm. Uh, and what's the next step here? Or is there a timeline worth noting? Uh, so the demolitions will start sometime this year. Um, we're a couple years out for the completion of this new building. And then there's various other moving pieces to this. One that I'm particularly interested in that was news to me when I interviewed uh, the legislative services officer who sort of oversees these projects, Paul Coble. He wants to bring back one of the original five downtown squares that were laid out when Raleigh was first built. Raleigh has Nash Square, Moore Square, and the state capitol square, but two others, one of which is where the governor's mansion is now, and one of which is where the community college system office is now, have been built on. They're no longer parks or squares. Uh, he's proposing the idea that we tear down even more buildings in the future and restore a public square to downtown Raleigh that hasn't been there for probably several hundred years. Mildly surprised Paul Coble didn't propose leveling the governor's mansion and turning uh, that you into know, a that square. I know, my I, mind, I, too. I mean, Danielle's smiling. He will be in charge of building the new governor's office, so we'll see what that looks like. Hmm. Uh, Steve Harrison, on the line from uh, Charlotte, you had an interesting, if not troubling, story that published this week about affordable housing. Seven years ago, as you write, and I'm going to read here from uh, your report, the publicly funded Charlotte Housing Authority put an ambitious plan into action, redevelop 16 acres of prime real estate in Dilworth and generate millions of new dollars for affordable housing in other parts of the city. The mostly black seniors who lived at the site were relocated in 2017. Their 122 one-story apartments known as Strawn Cottages were demolished soon after. 
but almost seven years after the cottages were torn down, nothing has been built. Steve Harrison, how come? Well, um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, the, 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 the idea was that our housing authority in Charlotte is going to take its its assets, some of its, some, you know, really prime real estate and redevelop it with, uh, become kind of a master developer with some affordable housing, but a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, market rate housing to make more money. And they've partnered with a Boston developer to do this. And it's kind of this high risk, high reward strategy. But, you know, in the, in the real estate market, things happen, bad things happen, deals go sideways, there are delays. And like you said, it's been six years, it's going to be seven years, maybe eight before anything happens. Um, and it's just, a, it's just a tough situation where, you know, Charlotte, just like the Triangle, has a real affordable housing problem. We remove 100 or so apartments, we demolish them, and, and, and years and years later, there's still nothing there. Maybe in the end, it will all work out and be a great project. But for now, it's just been sitting there for this prime real estate empty for years and years. Right. My pushback would be, regardless of how it works out, if you've just got however many acres in your report, you know, it's 17 acres just sitting there vacant for seven years. I don't know if it ever really is going to work out. Like it's, it's a failure on some level or so it would seem. Are people are people riled up about this? What was the response to your report? Like it's just this. It, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the, the reaction. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in that, you know, in local government, uh, you know, that, that city council members, county commissioners, they turn over pretty quickly. And so we've now got a project that's so old that so many of the people serving in office weren't even around. I mean, there were a lot of people who had no idea, uh, like, oh, really, this happened? You know, it, it's just kind of been forgotten. And, you know, we decided to kind of kind of resurrect it and see what happened and try and find some of the people who used to live there. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll see. The developer says they're going to try and get moving on this. It's not their fault, et cetera. There's other things out of their control. Hmm. But um, like I said, it's a bold strategy to play master developer um, as opposed to you know be strictly an affordable housing builder and manager. All right, let's pivot to Danielle Battaglia. Congress is back in. I want to acknowledge something that Rose Hoban taught me a long time ago, and that is not to use the Q word, at least as it relates to uh, a you-know-what kind of week. The Q word has five letters. It rhymes with Hyatt. Shh is a synonym. <laughs> it was awfully calm on Capitol Hill this week, Danielle. I don't want to jinx you. Uh, what's on the likely docket for next week? That's because they're actually not in yet. They're still uh -huh. on recess. Ah, that's, why. <laughs> that's, why it's, that's why the keyword's happening. Um, I think next week's going to get crazy, actually. we And I will say Jake Sherman of Punchbowl News is saying that there's breaking news on what I'm about to say. So I don't know what that is if you're listening to me right now. But um, we are dealing with a potential government shutdown, as usual, um, well, the lawmakers try to figure out how we're going to do government funding again. We've got two dates coming up on January 19th and February 2nd to fund two different categories of government funding. Um, and part of that is now contingent on whether we pass border security that is to the liking of the Freedom Caucus or the Republicans or the Democrats. There's a lot of chaos going on. 
Uh, I'd like to I, let me just offer the mea culpa. Like I literally am holding the 2024 congressional calendar in front of me. I can see they're not in this week. Uh, but for some reason, my my I don't know toddler adult brain moved to the second week of January. Like I, I do know how to read a calendar for the record. Um, Danielle, it's, okay. it's confusing. <laughs> it's not really though, but I appreciate that. Um, a little bit of skepticism here as a former state government reporter. Everybody else on this panel covers uh, more state government than than federal. My read on it is. Congress hadn't done much for a few years now. They ain't going to do much in an election year. And more from a policy standpoint is likely to happen at state capitals across the country this year than it is to happen on Capitol Hill. Please push back, however. You agree. No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to push back. I mean, you know, I think it's a little more than uh, this because a couple of bills were signed into law while I was on Christmas break. But we had put out that they only passed 31 pieces of legislation last year. That's really incredibly low. I think it was one of the worst effective congresses we've ever had in history um talking about the 118th congress which we're currently in we're starting the second session next second session of that congress next week um and i don't see it getting any better we are about to lose another republican which means that republicans can only lose two votes to be able to pass legislation in the house um i just don't see them being effective next year but Let's hope they all kumbaya over the holidays and uh, love each other, and they're going to work together. All right. Let's transition from one pathway of dysfunction to another pathway of dysfunction. The worst team in the NFL, 2-14, and 14, the Carolina Panthers. David Tepper in hot water tonight after he was seen throwing a drink on Jaguars fans during Jacksonville shutout win over Carolina. Coming in tonight, the National Football League has fined Panthers owner David Tepper $300,000. Tepper, temper tantrum. I'm going to try to contain myself here. A little bit of background. As I just noted, the, the Panthers are, are really lousy. They uh, have not done what they wanted to with the top pick of the NFL draft last year, Bryce Young, quarterback out of Alabama. Uh, and at this recent game from a luxury box, from a, a suite, owner David Tepper, who's worth, you know, north of $20 billion, chucked the, the remnants of uh, some ice cubes and uh, a little bit of liquid on a Jacksonville fan. Uh, Steve Harrison, it strikes me as really just being beneath him or someone in leadership. Take it away for me before I get myself in trouble. Is this defensible? Uh, no, I mean, absolutely not. And I don't think really, I mean, no one is defending him. There is no, not even a tiny subsection of the Panthers fan base that is like, I applaud his passion. No, I, we're not hearing that at all in Charlotte. There's just growing frustration about his leadership, that the team can't win. And the team seems to be getting even closer, you know, farther away from winning. And, you know, one more thing, it's like when you're in a, you know, professional sports team and you have a bad owner, you know, it could be a decades long problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at the Detroit Lions or the Washington, you know, the Washington football team under Snyder, you know, so I think people are starting to now kind of get in their head that, that their team, that the Panthers, may not be winning for years and years and years until there's a, a course correction. So, And this guy um, doesn't seem like he's the sort to uh, say, you know what, I'm not very good at this team owner thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should sell the team. I, mean, I don't see any a possibility of that, right? Mm-mm. Or even, yeah, exactly. And Or even, uh, I will still own the team, but I'm not any good at you know the football management part of this. I'm going to just turn over the keys completely because there is a sense that Tepper is somewhat involved in player personnel and right. making some decisions. And so, 
yeah, no sign of him stepping back at all. And this is a guy who who built uber wealth buying junk bonds in the 90s and 2000s. And uh, as far as I know, that doesn't equate to, you know, having a, necessarily a good understanding of whether or not you need to be in the cover three or whether the run pass option is, is what you want to milk through, you know, the second half of the season. Uh, Steve, let me ask you this in all seriousness. Uh, Tepper received a $300,000 fine, which Washington Post uh, columnist Sally Jenkins noted this week was like, a 15 one thousandths of a percent of his net worth. Like, this is minuscule. This would be like fining us 10 or $15. You owe me a quarter, Jeff. That was how I, I owe you a quarter exactly. for, for throwing something in your face. Why wasn't, and I, I know you don't make these decisions, Steve, but do we have any sense of whether or not he was, there was a suspension was considered of like, uh, you know, keeping him out of NFL stadiums or road stadiums for a little while? Because that seems like it might have been a little bit more of a punishment as opposed to this relatively small financial slap on the wrist. And the NFL has done that before, right? Mm Mm-hmm. They, they have in different scenarios. Owners usually operate under a different set of rules and punishments. But Steve, were they? If if you know, were, were there any other uh, punishments on the table here, or not so much? I don't know of the inside story of, of their deliberations. I do know there was a previous owner, and excuse me, my old age, I can't remember who had given a fan the bird mm. and was fined. I think a quarter of a million dollars. That was several years ago. So you could argue with inflation, it should have been higher, the $300,000 fine. But there was, in a way, some precedent the NFL has set for bad behavior by owners toward fans. And so they seem to kind of keep the drink-throwing incident in line with the the owner who gave the fan the finger. So it seems to be kind of where they landed on this. Quick fact check here. Uh, That was uh, Tennessee Titans owner Bud Adams 15 years ago now, if you can uh, believe it, and you're forgiven for not remembering 15 years later, uh, for giving the middle finger to a fan. He was fined a quarter million dollars. I would also offer this, maybe as cruel and unusual punishment, but it would be fun if NFL uh, Commissioner Roger Goodell said, Okay, David Tepper, what you have to do as your punishment is you have to go to every road game and you have to sit with the fans of the opposing team in the crowd for all eight games or nine games. with his own fans. I mean, they're they're just as likely to make him mad, too. Colin got it right. Yeah. You have to sit. You have to sit in the upper deck with your people. Yeah. All right, panel. Uh, we've got several minutes left. A lighter travel question uh, to end on. If we want to uh, jump in on this one, uh, we've we've got the rest of the year uh, ahead of us. What is one place in North Carolina that you hope or plan to visit in 2024? Colin has uh, done some wonderful reporting with his uh, Main Street NC series. You have been probably to more reaches of this state than just about anybody I know. Um, so it doesn't have to necessarily be a new place, but you've seen a lot of the state. Where do you want to go back to this? Well, year? I will be going back to Murphy next week, which is a six-hour drive from here to do a story for that Main Street series. So looking forward to spending a little more time in the farthest western reaches of the state that we don't hear as much about and uh, understanding a little bit of what makes things tick out that way. Um, but I have a few counties left to get to before I hit all 100 counties. Mm. So Ooh. sometime this year, maybe this will be the year I get to uh, – Lincoln County, uh, Haywood County, and Currituck County. So open to all recommendations for Mm. cool stuff to do in those places. Rose? Uh, Well, I'm going to be spending some time out west, too. My husband and I are heading up to Asheville in March. He's bringing his robotics team up there. So um, he's the mentor for the robotics team at one of the local high schools. So um, they'll be going to a competition, and I'll tag along, and then I'll I'll hang out with some folks in Nashville. And then we are hoping to get back out to uh, Murphy for the Pumpkin Chunkin' in Clay County. Oh, that'll and, be fun. Because uh, we've, we've missed it for the past couple of years. 
But um, we have a friend, and you know, we're part of a pumpkin chunkin team, and they have the Clay County Pumpkin Chunkin every October. And we didn't make it this year because we had gone on vacation and whatnot. But we've said like we're th- we're in for this coming year. And then finally, I'm hoping to get to Swain County to go to the Cherokee Hospital. So I'm going to be spending some time in the western part of the state. Steve Harrison, not much time. Briefly, one North Carolina outpost you want to go to this year. Um, well, we talked about that Mark Harris race earlier. That's just east of Charlotte. I think I will be cruising through Union and Anson counties and Scotland counties covering that race. So that's uh, that's my big travel plans for 2024. I'll make it to Curry Tuck County, one of those places Colin has not for my wife's family reunion. Uh, recommendation is Coin Jock Marina Restaurant, a tasty little place right along the uh, intercoastal waterway. Rose Hoban is Editor-in-Chief, Founder, and Chief Bottle Washer at North Carolina Health News. Colin Campbell is Capital Beer Chief at WNC. Steve Harrison is Politics Reporter at WFAE. Member Station in Charlotte. And Danielle Battaglia is McClatchy, Capitol Hill Correspondent. Thanks, y'all, for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. This episode of the North Carolina News Roundup was produced by Aaron Kiever. Denarius Thomas is our Technical Director. Other producers here at Dew South are Coldell Charco, Rachel McCarthy, and Stacia Brown for my co-host Leonita Inge. I'm Jeff Tabiri. We'll talk to you again on Monday.